Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and thanks as always to La Petit Chocolat and Tea Leaf Tea and Yeasty Boys for their support. And uh, this one is a conversation with Paul Crowther. He was also known as Emelyn when he was the drummer in Split Ends. He played on one of my all-time favourite albums and I think really probably the most important New Zealand album ever, certainly the most important New Zealand album in my life, Mental Notes, the debut album by Split Ends. He was the drummer in the band for just a couple of years. Uh, so we talk about that and we talk about his um, how he was a fan of the group, how he actually went and saw them play before he joined and he was couldn't kind of couldn't believe his luck really to join this band. And we talk about his departure from the band and how, how uh, I guess how sad that was, how um, all these years on I don't think it's fully reconciled for him um, but he he had this other thing going on he was a, a tinkerer with electronics and he was a, a bit of a whiz he would he would solder together the guy's gear when they were over in England and he would fix amps and um, modify pedals and create things and he was working on an, a guitar pedal so right around the time that he was ousted from split ends he made a guitar pedal called the Hot Cake, and they have sold pretty much like that ever since. Um, loads of guitarists around the world play them. Uh, I think just about everyone in New Zealand uh, that plays guitar in a band has one or wants one uh, or has had one. And uh, this is still pretty much a, a mum and pop sort of home operation. A lot of the work of these pedals is, is garden shed stuff. So we morph into a conversation around that too and talk about how the pedals came about and how he sustained doing that. And, um, uh, you know, uh, he's one of my drum heroes. I've got to say, I've listened to Mental Notes almost more than just about any other album and his playing on that is, uh, is to me, still really quite a revelation. So I had never met him before and it was a real honour. I recorded this conversation a couple of months ago when I spent a few weeks up in Auckland and I went around and met uh, a few musicians and you've heard a couple of those already and you'll hear a few more. Um, so I hope you enjoy this one. It's me talking with former Split Ends drummer and guitar pedal maker Paul Crowther. I guess let's start with where do you come from? Where do you, where do you arrive in the world and what's happening in your early life? Oh, okay. I was I, I, um, I was born in Dunedin, mm. and I was there through to secondary school. And um, I left school after two years secondary, so I just turned 15. And I worked with the railways and communications. I was lucky, lucky enough to, to get a job with them, and then I moved to Auckland mm. when I was 19, uh, which is about 69. <clears throat> and um, with the railways, and then I worked for a company, Beverly Bruce and Goldie, who, who were making Jansen amplifiers and also the organs, and I designed an organ for them based on ideas I had after modifying one of their resisting organs. Yeah. And then I went back with the railways, and then I was with Split Ends. That wrong order. I was back with the railways, and I went back to Jansen again, or Beverly Bruce and Goldie when they were doing their Lowry organs. Yep. They're importing Lowry's and they're all being assembled here like so many products were because of uh, local um, import restrictions, because of local protection. So these organs came from America and they were built into cabinets made in New Zealand. Mm. 
as were other brands, other companies were doing that too. There's a lot, lot of industry in New Zealand in electronics then. And um, then I was off for split ends for a couple of years, went to the UK with them, in the, or Australia and the UK, and then came back and I, was, and I came back with, to the railways again. No, my, I've got that wrong too. No, came back to Janssen, mm. back with the Lowry organs. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, music and electronics, that's your professional life outside of this job you're talking about with the railways and, and that, you know, yeah. those two things have carried on right through. So we, when do they come into your life? Like when do you, and which do you discover first? Are you a kid that tinkers with circuitry or are you a person that picks up the drumsticks first? Uh, that, well, yes, let me think. Um, yeah, I was interested in circuitry, making crystal sets, little crystal radios. You, all you need is an aerial, a few components and a little pair, a pair of headphones and you, you could listen to AM radio. Mm. So I became interested in what you called being interested in radio in those days rather than electronics. Mm -hmm. So I became interested in radio. And I also um, became involved with the St Paul's Cathedral Choir in Dunedin. The lady who was looking after me, um, my mother died when I was quite young. I was only just turned, just turned six or barely when my mum died. And I was being looked after by a lady and she got me involved with the St Paul's Cathedral Choir. And I loved the sound of the organ, and I realised, I think I was interested, I think that's what got me interested in sound, really. Mm -hmm. and, and music, singing in the choir, and being absolutely intrigued by the sound of the organ, the big, huge pipe organ that was there, and still there. Mm. And then um, I joined the, when I was about 13, I joined the Air Training Corps, and I joined the Air Training Corps band. And I learned to play a, uh, a side drum, just basic, a few basic rudiments. I was playing in the, and that was every Friday night. We practiced and we played at things like Anzac Day and the old parade here and there. And um, one of the chaps in the band, um, a chap called Graham Christie, was a fantastic drummer. And he, through him, I became interested in playing a drum kit. Mm. And of course, by then it's all Beatles and everything else. Yeah, yeah. So we all and uh, and I I started off playing in a dance band, three little three piece dance band for a year. Then I joined a rock band in Dunedin, an established band, which was a really good break for me. A band called The Gentlemen, and it was all Hollies, Beatles, that yeah. kind of thing, man for man material, and. Um, then I played another couple of bands in Dunedin before I came to Auckland and I carried on playing but at the same time I became very interested in electronics as applied to music so I'd work on the band equipment and fix it and so on. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. And your, um, I guess one of your, well your, probably your longest musical association uh, is with Eddie Rayner. Would that be right? Yeah, um, you, yes. Because you, you, you knew him pre-Split Ends and you're still playing with him in recent days. Oh, yeah, we, we, we had a project, we had a yeah. covers band called the Conrays and yeah. we, we went all out just to, to, to sound as much like the originals as we could. Yeah. And we felt we were probably able to 
reproduce the sound live better than what those bands oh, could have right. done in the day. So this is like that Todd Rundgren album, Faithful. You know, oh, right? I have... Do you know that? He, no. He, he does... Yeah, he, he put out an album, one half of it is originals, but the second half of it is famous cover versions, you know, um, things like the Beach Boys and the Beatles, oh, and, and he plays every instrument and he's recreates them. Well, no, I'll I'll have to listen to it. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like that. (laughs) Yeah, no, we got this band together and we, and the first song we learned was um, Tin Soldier by Small Faces, you know, so it suddenly took you right back to when I was 17 and playing that material, you know. So that was, that was, that was a lot of work actually, Mm. put a lot of work into that, it was so much fun doing it. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately we were just a bit, it was a bit difficult with, you're talking to a, you know somebody who's 24 years old, telling them you're you're a 60s covers band. So as soon as you say the word 60, yes, you know that in their mind is you're ancient. Yeah, yeah. But when we did play, we got always got a great reaction because the older members in the audience would know the material. Yes, and that would take them right back. And then the younger people appreciated. I think that we sounded good and, yeah. and it was good songs and yeah. they're used to hearing stuff they haven't heard before more yeah. now because so many bands are playing their own material anyway Yeah. and here we were playing material they may have heard at home or not but yeah so every time we played it was always very successful in terms yeah. of audience reaction yeah yeah but it's just these um, getting the kind of work we needed to make the band worth it for us for the, for the kind of lineup we had was probably looking at sort of more corporate work yeah and, and yeah so suddenly it's like you wear something back and stay out of the way and no one's really interested. So. Yeah, it takes the joy so, out of yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> we, we did support the Hollies and yes. that was fantastic. Was, yeah. yeah. Especially we played the Civic Theatre and we started off with Tin Soldier and was that situation where the audience was completely silent after we stopped. Yeah. And then was the applause, you know. It was yeah, yeah. Great, yeah. It was so much fun. Yeah. So anyway, then, that was good while it lasted. Yeah. yeah so, so I originally met Eddie. Well, of course... Well, he was Tony Rainer then, because yes. that was all before we changed our names. Yeah. And I was in a band called The Motivation, a band called Roger Skinner, who's still going, he's in his 70s, still, still out there playing. Mm. And we had a keyboard player, Brad Coates, who joined Tramline, so we thought, well, what, are we, what are we going to do? And then along came Tony Rainer. And we were auditioning him at a venue in town called The Embers, Embers Nightclub, and they had a Hammond C3 organ there. And we were playing a song by um, Jethro Tull called Living in the Past, which is quite a cool song. It was all yeah. five, four times and everything. And of course, here's Tony, he's got the left hand bass line down and the right hand lead line all worked out. <laughs> and we thought, what? This is incredible. We just couldn't believe it. Yeah. Couldn't believe our luck. So that's when I met, first met him. And then we got on really well, partly because, well, we had common interests. We both quite like listening to bands like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and so on, mm. somewhat later on, but also, um, you know, I had the technical side too, mm. and I, was, I just loved keyboards and the technology, so, yeah, we, we've been pretty good friends ever since. Yeah, 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 yeah. and as, I mean, he he's there very early in the earliest sort of days of Split Ends, is, is he how you join the band? Does he recommend you? Yeah. Basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, I saw Split Ends playing. So you, all right, yeah. I saw them playing. We'd, in the meantime, we'd had a band. Eddie and I, or Tony and I, had been in a band with Alistair Adele called mm-hmm. Orb. Mm-hmm. We were doing a lot of material by Bowie. It was very early, early Bowie days. A lot of people didn't know who, who Bowie yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. And 
And uh, I remember once we were playing some Bowie and someone said, play some decent music. So we played, <laughs> we turned around and played Teddy Bear's Picnic and they seemed to be happy with that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, so we had this band Orb and we played mostly university-type gigs and that was all good for a while. And then that kind of faltered a wee bit, but that was okay. Eddie went away for a while, but then I went and saw Split Ends pre-Tony Eddie joining. Mm. And it was at Main Street, or I think it was called Main Street, maybe in Peter Pan then, in Queen Street. And I saw this band and I thought, my goodness, see you later, Tony. You know, <laughs> I, I, I knew he was going to be in this band. Right. I said, he just had to be. There's so much buzz about the band. It's very hard to, it was like the same feeling you had when you heard the Beatles on the radio. You hear a song and you get that amazing, magical feeling. Yeah. And seeing this band, and hearing them, and seeing them on, uh, what was it, New Faces, I, it was just, they were just incredible. And they were kind of folky sounding. Yeah, I was going to say they were a little bit, a little bit prog, a little bit folk, yeah, a little bit, bit yeah, jug well, band even, almost. Yeah, know. because earlier on there's no bass or yeah. drums, yeah. but there's flute and there's violin, there's acoustic instruments and there's acoustic piano. Phil's vaudevillian thing is happening, you know, that's where he's sort of putting that in place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that was largely Tim as well, Gordillion thing near that. But they were just like this really progressive folk band, I guess you, you could yeah. describe them. And then they, um, that's right, then they got Wally Wilkinson on guitar, and of course, all those people in Mike Tun's books, all the details of mm, that. But mm. Wally Wilkinson on guitar and, and Mike Tun, they'd played the band together previously, <clears throat> and Mike's brother Jeff. So that's the lineup I saw. And then the next time I saw them, they were playing a concert at St. James Theatre. No, no, it was the old His Majesty's. Was a hoot Majesty's, mm. one of the, which is what the one that got pulled down in the middle of the night by the corporate vandals. Yeah, um, and he just joined. Mm. He, he, he called me. He said, "I've been asked to join Split Ends," and I said, "Yeah." <laughs> I was completely not surprised. Yeah, yeah. And I saw them with him, and Phil Judd, Phil, Phil kind of left at that point, and he came on just a little cameo spot, wrapped up in bandages. Mm. And um, and then a few, well, wasn't that much that much later? He called me and said we're looking for a drummer because Jeff's leaving. And I said, oh yes, okay. He said, would you like to come for an audition? And I thought, crikey, okay, yeah, great. So we went for an audition, and then it was like, okay, we'll carry on from here. So yeah. how? How um, I mean, you you perform on Mental Notes. That's the debut Split Ends album. How long are you in the band before that album happens? Like, are they already probably working up some of that material? But yes, well, quite a lot of the material. When mm. I joined the band, we had about a couple of weeks. I think it was not very long, maybe three, before we played a Buckethead concert. Yeah, because Radio Haraki Buckethead at Mercury Theatre. <clears throat> and a lot of those songs on mental notes I had to learn yeah, yeah. reasonably quickly, but I was getting plenty of cues from Mike Chun because, you know, there's lots of gaps in the music, lots of rests and coming yes. back in and things. And, and that went 
Yeah, that first one went quite well, and then we learned some other songs, I think. Walking Down the Road might have happened but after I joined, and Amy, two other songs. Yeah. And so, was it 70, might have been 74 when I joined the band, late 74. And then early 75, we in Australia we recorded Mental Notes. Yeah. 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 So look, the great thing is with first albums, isn't it? Bands have often been playing yes, material for a long time. Yes, that's what I mean. Time. Like some of that material's being worked up over. Yeah, and all yeah. the songs have their own identity. They're yes. not all just knocked out in the, in the same session. Or what do they say? You've got your whole life to make your first record, and then ten, <laughs> ten months to make your second. That's, kind of thing, isn't eh? it? Just a, and that, that was exactly like, the case with Split Ends. Yeah, less, well, uh, you know, less than. <laughs> yeah, well, I think once the band gets a record contract and then the deal is you do an album every two years or something. Yeah, yeah. So suddenly there's pressure to come up with material, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so Mental Notes had that magic about it, but interestingly, we weren't that happy with the record with the recording, mm. which is kind of silly because I listen to it now and I think, well, that's still got a real magic about that it. That was going to be my next question: was um, is it an album you can listen to? And, oh yeah. You know, do you listen to have it. a fondness? Yeah. For it, and has, how has that changed across the years? I feel I feel better about it all the time. Yeah, actually, I know. Yeah. I never think, oh gosh, listen to that. Oh, what are we doing? I mean, the only thing is, the music was quite. The arrangements were quite complicated. Yes. Not overly technical, but just lots of parts, lots of yeah, lots of changes stuff. and yeah. stuff. So I guess it makes it interesting. Yeah. Oh, it's you know, <clears> you know it's interesting to listen to. And, yeah. uh, and I I heard a, a replay of Nick Bollinger's review of the album because he does very good reviews, doesn't yes. he? Really in depth. And yeah. Obviously, goes to a lot of trouble. And uh, and it sounded I'm just on national radio. That's on yeah, FM, but it's mono. Yeah. But I thought, gosh, that sounds okay. You know, that yeah. sounds yeah. nothing to be ashamed of. No, no. More, more to be, <laughs> plain to be quite pleased about. Yeah. But anyway, we decided uh, we're going to re-record Mental Notes in England, and that's when Phil Manzanera came on board. Yeah. And so there was quite a few of the tracks on Mental Notes, um, and some some other ones that weren't on Mental Notes, and we dropped dropped a couple. Yeah, yeah. So maybe the the song maybe which I had high hope for as a as a solo as, as a single. Um, that was dropped, and um, songs like "Walking Down a Road," you know, no, no, sorry, not "Walking Down a Road." Uh, no, what was it? Uh, I have to think of the name of it now. Uh, I can't remember. I'll, I'll think of it. Um, Anyway, a couple of songs were dropped and a couple mm. were added in, and an older song, 129, Matt May Idol, was added in. Yeah, and there's a couple of um, re records where the original is Phil singing and then Tim sings, or vice versa. There's a couple of changes in vocalists, I think, too. Oh, there might have been, yeah. may have been two. Yeah. Yeah, I can't quite yeah. remember what happened there. Yeah. And then also in England, too, we had, when we when we did 129, Matt May Idol, we had uh, Miles Golding in. Yeah. The original violinist, yes, because he was established in London and playing with, yeah, he was playing in an orchestra, I'm not sure, maybe in the London 
Yeah, something like that, which he's yeah. still doing. Well, yeah, he's, yeah, he's yeah, still he's, doing that. And yeah, with a couple yeah. of friends and with the cellos yeah. and so on. Yeah. And they played string parts, which right. was nice. Yeah, yeah. Because all everything, all the strings and everything on the first album, Mental Notes, was all string machine. It was Mellotron, <coughs> string machine, and and um, and all it's all keyboards. And yeah. All, all and all the brass parts that he did, the little trumpet solos, all done with keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. Now you you um, helped. Build some of the synthesizers that are used in that album, the analog uh, synths. Is that right? Yeah. No, I built a synth. Yeah. It was like a hobby. After I heard Emerson Lake and Palmer, Lucky Man, I thought I've yeah. just got to make a synth. <laughs> and so it was really doing. I learnt a lot doing it because yeah. there's no, very not that much information available, no circuitry available, and so. But I had to learn about generating exponential curves and well, how, you know, control oscillators and things. For anyone listening to this that's grown up with the internet, how did one do that back then when you say I had to do a little learning? Like, is it just trial and error stuff largely? Partly. But also I get like, uh, um, there's a couple of companies, Motorola and Fairchild who are building, making integrated circuits and they had application notes and so you go okay you mm. you get the application notes <coughs> and they had one <coughs> for instance for a analog multiplier and for those who might be interested it more or less involved taking the logarithm of two voltages and then adding them and then taking the reverse log to get the the product of the two numbers mm. and then I realized just that reverse log bit was a needed I but I needed to generate my exponential curves for controlling the oscillators so that a change of one volt on the keyboard would, would double the frequency of the of the oscillator. So we think linear, we go every octave's the same, but musically, as you can tell by the shape of a harp or the shape of anything like that, it's not linear and it's actually exponential, so yeah. every time you increase the control voltage by one volt, in the case of Moog and my one and so on, uh, the frequency of the oscillator would double. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I had to get that right, and that, and that particular circuit is very temperature sensitive. Mm. Uh, you know, that, that was improved over the years. So anyway, I, I just, just, I learned a lot by mm. just making that sense as a hobby. That's it, mm. that's it there actually. Oh right, yeah, yeah. And that's the key. I was, I was looking at that wondering. Yeah, I, yeah, of, yeah, I, yeah. I, I put some labelling on because I went to the Papa for a wee while. Yes, yes. But apparently they said they didn't have the room for it, so <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite sure. I see a lot of empty space at the Papa. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, funny, isn't it? But um, <laughs> yeah, so so that was a big learning. And, and anyway, referring back to split ends, mm. um, yeah, we used it for a couple of gigs earlier mm. on, but we mm. didn't. It wasn't that portable and. Yeah. I didn't really get to completely get it finished before I was off with Ian's. Well, mm. t- tell me, you, you mentioned, because Phil obviously is, with Tim, they are the kind of front people and co-creators of the band yes. and in the early days. But yeah. Phil is known for leaving the band a number of times, and you mentioned before you joined that he was almost in a cameo role at, at you know one of the shows you saw. Yeah. So... And yet, mental notes. I mean, they're yeah. largely his songs. Or he, his he, was, he, was, he was back in the band. Yes, yeah, when yeah. I, when I joined, he he he'd come back to the band. Yeah. Now, what was it like for you meeting characters like like Phil and Tim? I mean, obviously the whole band, but they're the two distinct musical personalities that are driving it from its earliest days. 
It was like meeting rock stars. I mean, I, I, they were just, in my mind, they were just huge. Mm. They were just mm. so talented. And, you know, I just loved being around the quirkiness and the yeah. whatever. And we would have the, would have the odd little party, a bit of a do, often at Mike Chun's parents' place, and we'd yeah. all be sitting around, no one would say, no one would say anything. <laughs> <clears throat> so we were in the same band, but we weren't always... Eddie and I were pretty good mates, and Mike mm. Chun and I used to spend a lot of time together. We'd go to the beach on Sundays and things. Mm. <clears throat> but it was interesting. The in interpersonal relationships were quite interesting. They were a little bit distant in mm. some ways mm. between with, with Phil and Tim, but... That was kind of fine. That was all right. Mm, mm. Yeah, and we got a bit closer really when we went to Australia. We're all living in the same place, in the same hotel. Because it's the first time for all of you, I guess. And, oh yeah. And, you know, it's a big, big world then. Being little New Zealanders sitting out travelling. <laughs> yeah, I go off to Australia where, and and just initially in Sydney we went to Sydney and we just completely wrongly represented it. You know we. Build as the heaviest band from New Zealand because we did some swap with a band from Aussie called Hush. They came to New Zealand and and they were kind of heavy, and we went over there and got all just the wrong support. So it's just ridiculous. They're named after the Deep Purple song, no doubt. Or I was probably yeah. right actually. Yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> yeah, so so we were just wrongly built, but gradually things started coming right for us and when I think about it now it seemed like an age but quite quickly because we got some television time mm. I don't know if you've seen it it's um there's a program called GTK getting to know I think it was called yeah and we played live on that yeah and we played all of um strange fiction time for a change yeah yeah and I have seen that yeah I mean crikey you know I mean you yeah. think now that was <laughs> Yeah, let I us know. Do, let us do all of that. It was yeah. pretty good. We yeah. just, it wasn't just a three-minute pop song. We no, played. that's a, that's a sweet. <laughs> and, 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 and they got and this, listen to the sound. Now I think, oh well, okay. Yeah. Would have been nice to have a bit more guitar <laughs> in there. Who was mixing that? But it was done live. Yeah. As I, and um, and they got a lot of audience reaction, like phone people phoning in and that kind of thing to to find out who this band was mm. or more about the band. And we, and we got to play, they had a program about an artist who was kind of a, a paint-throwing artist and, and, and we were asked to not only provide the music for it but also appear in, in the program. Mm. So we're there miming along to what was recorded for us and um, he's doing his paint-throwing. Mm. And I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. but So we had little bits and pieces like that and mm. then we, we, played, we were playing in a, a pub called... Kudji Bay, I think it was, I forgot what it was called now, it was in Kudji Bay, and the band Skyhooks came to see us, and their, their manager Michael Ganinski came. He owned Mushroom Records, and uh, and we had our, our, our tour manager was um, Dave Russell, who'd previously been in, in Ray Columbus and the Invaders, among other bands, and, and he was a friend of our then manager Barry Coburn, and um, he knew Mike Ganinski, so there was a bit of a contact there. And I mean, we got back to the hotel, which was the Squire Inn, what was called the Squire Inn in, in uh, Bondi, and they we're in the lift, and Mike Ganinski's saying, yeah, well, we'll talk about an album. I'm going, hello? <laughs> so, and then shortly after that, we were in Festival Studios in Sydney recording. 
Mm. Now, Mental Notes is uh, an album that you know occupies a pretty special place for a lot of New Zealanders. I feel. Um, I imagine in some cases, like I'm an obvious example. It's not the first Split Ends album they heard. Um, they go back to it and understand it as they're working through everything the band's done. And I can listen to it. I mean, I've grown up with it. I can listen to it um, and look for different things. One of the things that I often am um, blown away by by the album is, is your drum playing, which I think is very um, informed by prog rock. And, you know, I wonder, do you know what... I mean, what were your early drum influences? I mean, there's a jazziness to it, but again, that's part of prog rock of the time. There's the military component. Yeah, I was able to play roles and things. Mm, mm. And, you know, to a reasonable degree. And, well, my daughter pointed out who my influence was when she was about 13. Yeah. And I, I played Yes, Roundabout by Yes. yes. She said, yeah. oh, right, well, we don't know who influenced you, do we, Dad? You know, because... <laughs> And I really did love Bill Griffith's play. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, I, was going, I was going to mention him, but I wanted yeah, to. No, yeah, no, I love yeah. the way he played. You know, <laughs> yeah. just listen to, it's worth listening to what he does in Roundabout, the yes. way he plays and yep. the drumming he plays in that. And the wee fills. And, and I guess I was influenced, never be able to play as well as he can play, but... Uh, but it's, that lovely, it's that lovely dance between absolute precision and a looseness. You know, like... Yeah, exploring yeah. Exploring and... Yeah, yeah. And just the little fills, you yeah. know, and, and, and I mean... Yeah, I mean, for now, these days, there's nothing. You see some of the drummers around there and you think, well, they can just play whatever they want, you know, just because people are so much better players. But mm -hmm. it was um, him and probably Carl Palmer a bit, mm -hmm. you know, because if you listen to something like Lucky Man, I mean, he's drumming all over it, you know. Yeah, it's almost yeah. people would say, oh, that's, you know, you're overplaying, but actual fact, it was just create a whole atmosphere and texture to the song anyway, so... Mm. So I guess it was probably a bit of that in there. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I, I like, yeah, I enjoyed swing. I enjoyed listening to swing and jazz mm, and things. Yeah, mm. I did, not that I was ever that very good at playing that jazz. I've never really played no, that you band. No, but you can hear you were listening to it, you know. You, yeah. You can hear yeah, it in your playing. Swing yeah. a bit, yeah. yeah. And, and then, speaking of swing, I mean, someone like John Bonham yeah. played with a great amount of yes. swing too. Yes, yes. We, Anyway, I'm, we've all had to be influenced by them. I get very yeah. angry when people talk about him being, you know, a big, dumb, lead foot kind of player because there's so much swing in what he does and he's really compositional. You know, oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah that's what I love about him. Obviously, he's band. a heavy hitter, but... Well, yeah, but I yeah, pretty solid player. Yeah. But not usually, not bash, not real no, bash, because no. you wouldn't get the result he got if he just... just Bash, you know, he played with really good expression. Mm. So you, you know, you play like there's still light and shade. Mm. Yeah. And that's what's kind of, in a lot of cases, missing with a lot of music now. Everything sort of has to be full volume, everything compressed. Yeah. Drum kits is often live, drum kits are saying just absolutely bloody awful. You think, yeah. What? what a, What's that bass drum sound like a huge pillow for? Where's the impact? Where's the, where's the bass guitar gone, you know? But you, you say, listen to Zeppelin. I mean, they can sound good on my little transistor radio in the shed, mm -hmm. you know. Mm. And same with Deep Purple and those earlier type bands. And you can listen. You can probably isolate the music, just the backing track, and all the riffs. Just keep all those and from the from the vocals, and it sounds great. Mm -hmm. Put the vocal on its own, sounds great. And yeah. combine is just huge. Yeah. 
That's what that's what's a bit lacking these days. We get vocal and rhythm section or complicated rhythm section and useless vocal or yeah. meaningless lyrics or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so yes, you, anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, so you <laughs> I digress. You you travel with split ends and they when they go over to England the first time it's difficult? Uh well not not initially because what happened was we thought we had a record deal with Island Records. Mm. But for some reason or other, that fell through. So Mushroom Records took us to England anyway. Mm. And they put us into Basing Street Studio. And we had Phil Manzanera, mm. who, who, who had, we had supported our Roxy Music for one show in, in Sydney. And Phil Manzanera was very interested in, in working with us. Um, and also he had their engineer Rick Davies and we had this nice studio and we recorded Mental Notes again. Yeah. It was, yeah. It, was re- it was released as Second Thoughts yeah. for Australia and New Zealand, which is slightly negative connotation, but anyway. And then we wanted to look for a record deal. The idea was for, for, to get a record deal based on the recording. And we were very keen to have Chrysalis on board if they were interested. And they were. We got a record deal with Chrysalis. Yeah. So yeah, then there was a bit of tension in them. This is all over a relatively short time. We played we played a, a showcase gig for Chrysalis um, at the um, oh, Marquee, which went down very well. And that was all for the crit- for the critics and the booking agents and that kind of thing, you know, mm. very critical audience. And we got an encore. We played a Walmart gig with a band called Gentle Giant before that. Uh, no, we played a, a gig with Gentle Giant so Chrysalis could see us play live right at Southampton. Mm. And that went down well with the audience. So Chrysalis, that convinced Chrysalis to sign us up, I think. And that was. And we did another warm-up show somewhere in another venue. People, someone like Mike Chan remember, uh, like a big pub. And it was just a, a warm-up before the marquee. And Phil Mazzanera come along, and Eno come along, Brian Eno mm. come, you see. Mm. So people are on the on the on the on the public phone ringing their friends. <laughs> Brian Eno is here, and the place was packed. Yeah, these people, all these people came to this wow. here, and us playing this warm up game. Mm. So that was pretty. That was kind of cool. Mm. But then we're looking. For, but then uh, we're looking for a booking agent because you didn't get gigs without a booking agent. So just, that's just that's the setup. You know, doing good supports and that kind of thing is a, if you play with the right band, of course you get to play with the right audience. Yeah. And uh, and so there's a bit of tension in the band, and we were doing the odd audition for this. Can't remember the name of the company now. We did this like playing in the re- in the rehearsal place we had at Easy Hire Rehearsal Studio, and um, and these people sat there listening to it. It was very weird. Anyway, in the middle of all that, somehow I managed to get myself booted out of the band <laughs> yeah now I, I'm trying to remember I think I'm probably thinking of Mike's book but is it Mike Chun that uh, delivers the news to you or uh... yeah well he sort of had to yeah because the, the, uh, I think they might want just the manager to come and tell us yeah tell me but Mike probably I think he's well we're living in the same house yeah so, yeah so Mike came and told us and he said I've got some news for you I said yeah he says not very good and I said well what is it he said oh the band wants to get another drummer is there any reason? He said, oh, it's Phil and Tim, really. 
So, and I, I just thought, bugger them. Yeah. You know, and I'm using toned down language. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, oh, because it was like, well, here, you know, what's the problem? You know, yeah. don't like my jokes or don't like my drumming or <laughs> could you really start, and being yeah. younger, being younger, we're 20s, you know, um, you start taking it quite personally. You think, well, well, the whole being what have I done wrong? A, you know, it's yeah. like playing crap or something. So you start to really feel that it, what you've contributed so far is is not being has been no good. And then, um, so I thought, right, and I, I, I was really, I was quite, dis, I was kind of disgusted, or very, yeah, I was very disappointed. But I was more disgusted than disappointed, I suppose. Yeah, it's it pretty upsetting. So anyway, I stayed on at the place where I was living with Mike. They, I was able to stay on there because yeah. we're just getting so much a week uh, um, to live on. I think thirty-five quid or something, and then we had the accommodation. So I went and I've been involved with Easy Hire because we'd been rehearsing there, and I got to know the people there. So I went and worked there for a while as a technician, fixing. Backline amplifiers and things. Pondering so what that, you do that next, kept me going. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah. I thought about either staying there, yeah, or maybe moving back to Melbourne. Mm. I knew quite a lot was happening in Melbourne, but then in the end, my my wife and I we decided to come back to New Zealand. So well, so by the end, a couple of months later, I was back here. Before we get into our next into the next step, which which um, is is a nice and interesting turn. Um, do you ever reconcile? why they wanted to get rid of you from the band. I mean, do you ever talk to Tim or Phil about it or um, do you work it out yourself or do you get any further information? No, not never got any further information, but I'm, I'm just thinking um, maybe, it's, I think sometimes the things aren't feeling great. There's a bit of a funny vibe going on. We're, yeah. we're, we're, we've got new songs and everything and you get the kind of strange vibe happening and I think, I think sometimes, especially younger bands, I mean, you, you've got a manager, but what do managers do? God, no, take 20%. They're, they're not managing. Yeah. Friggin' useless, really. And I've seen this more than once, too. They just <laughs> hang out and get 20% and just yeah. ha hang around the songwriter, you know. But um, I think sometimes something's got to give. And so you kind of fire someone, and then suddenly you sprung to action. You've got to find someone yes. new, and it sort of give, injects some new blood. Uh, the new idea blood. that it's yeah, a restart. maybe it's that. Yeah, maybe and maybe somebody had a word in their ear, and maybe oh, well, you need to be a bit more commercial because I think originally the band didn't think about being like anybody else or trying to be yeah. anything. But I think when we got to England, realised we were at, at the second rung from the bottom of a new ladder yeah. after, after Australia. Yeah. It wasn't like we just went along and, along and carried on from halfway up. <laughs> mm. And and I think it was just that tension, just trying to get a booking agency. And this was all over quite a short time, you know, a couple of weeks or something. Mm. Um, so I think they just, we needed, I think they just felt they needed a more solid straight down the middle drummer. And I kind of realised that more probably when they when they got Mel Green. Yeah. Who was a fine drummer in his own way, very meat and potato, very straight, very straight player. Yeah. And very, a lot of his own style, which was kind of neat. 
And then they, so I think they carried on with that for a bit, but then when Mike left, um, that was all happened at once really, didn't it? Because Mike was, Mike, Phil Judd left. Yeah. I think Phil actually had trouble dealing with just the live performance. Mm. He wasn't mm. really That's my understanding coming on the is, stage. Yeah, he yeah. just had trouble dealing with that, maybe with the touring as well, I'm not sure, but just the live performance, you know, he's genius, but just getting up on doing that stuff live, I think was part of the catalyst. And um, so, you know, Phil left when they were on in, a, in America and they needed a new performer, a, a new, someone to replace Phil. And Mike Chun had come back to New Zealand and saw Neil playing and realised should be in the band. Yeah. And Tim had often mentioned his brother. It was like he was training for it from... <laughs> Wiley, I think he had split ends written on his pencil case yeah. at school. I yeah. think he was quite a fan. Yeah. But, you know, obviously... <laughs> he was 15. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, know, you know, yeah. Yeah, and, and Phil had often said, oh, uh, sorry, um, Tim had often said, well, my brother Neil and I, we sing so well together and, you know, and of course it's completely right. And so mm. that's another whole story, isn't it? But, yeah, yeah. So he joined and Mike left and then they got. But another good thing that happened to my mind, um, I think Mike and I work well together as players, as rhythm section, but I think because we were kind of intellectual, we could both work things out and remember what we worked out and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I think when once Mel, when Mike left and they they got they got um, Nigel, Nigel, who was a friend of Mel Green's. Mm, mm. Yeah, they were in a band together. Opti yeah, and they were, octopus, something like I that. Yeah, it might have been that. Yeah, and, but they together they were a phenomenal rhythm yes. section. Yes. It's, it's often some of the parts. It's not a matter of getting two great players together yeah. or good or whatever it's just they work so well together yeah and and you know then Neil came along with his he, he wrote the fantastic yeah with his bag of songs poppy songs yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and nah, so and, and for me I never stopped being a fan of the music well that was was next thing I asked you is what yeah you what was your say, relationship oh, well, bugger them right? yeah. used to hate them no no I, no you, you couldn't pretend the music no I just stayed a fan of the music yeah I probably didn't speak to Tim for about two years. Yeah. But, but you know, I mean, when I look back on it all now, I, I'm totally happy, totally relaxed about it all. Mm, mm, I mean, maybe if I had stayed in the band, what, and, and been more tense and something else might have gone wrong, and mm. the whole thing might have fallen apart. Mm. You just don't know. So the outcome, and they went through a lot of tribula trials and tribulations after I was in the band. Yes, yeah, so I was just going to say, like, you're firing... Um, is the start of, in a way, obviously things have been bubbling with, with Phil um, before that, but your firing is the start of a whole lot of difficulties for them, which you managed to not have to deal with by being the first one Yeah, well, 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 It's well, well, very well, tricky well, for yeah, another couple of years, yeah, isn't well, it, at well, least? Yeah, well, I would, well, I would have been in there battling along with them, but, mm, but yeah, yeah. You, know, you know, but um, I remember I went calling the chrysalis and they and, and and I was a little disgruntled and a bit annoyed about being fired and I said, Well Phil will be leaving next. Mm. So I must have at the time I must have felt Phil wasn't happy. Mm. Uh, and it was just a wee bit of a yeah, yeah, a bit of wee bit of bad blood for me then, but but um anyway. You weren't wrong. Oh, I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't wrong about that, but you know, it, I mean, it's a real credit to them all, to all, all the players, everyone in the band, that the band carried on, stuck it, stuck it out. Mm. Tim, Tim stuck it out. 
Well, what I find, and and they and 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 Eddie was, you know, he he was a strong support in the band for mm. the other guys. I think it felt very awkward when I was first fired because we were friends. Mm. But you know, we we kept in touch and everything. And, yeah. I guess one of my um, uh, amazements about Split Eds is, and I guess this happens with bands that have a few different members and quite a large lineup at various points, but. But um, everyone involved in it has contributed hugely to whatever period of the band they were in, and individually, and then has gone on to do other things with music. You know, like obviously Miles Golding is a very early member of Split Ends, but yeah. he follows his passion to become a, a, a full classical musician. Yes. And uh, and no one sort of really reaches a burnout and gives up out of Split Ends. There's, everyone's. Involved in other projects, something yeah. going, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's right, actually. That's true. Yeah. As well as being, uh, it, uh, you it, know. So I wasn't necessarily a professional musician. I mean, I, mm. I went professional full time when I joined the Yeah, yeah. And when we and when we left, you know, and then I'm I'm coping with the idea of not having to be we have a nine to five job. So I had other projects going <laughs> on the side. Like, yeah, yeah. Was working on ideas and. Um, Including my pedal, you see, the, the distortion well, pedal. Well, should we get to the pedal, which, which, yeah. I, as I understand it, kind of uh, is is there. Your, it's there, right as your insplodings and, and leaving. Your, your it was yeah. Years, that's quite right. Yeah. Yeah, I came up with the idea for another kind of distortion. I've always fascinated by sound, and and I made fuzz, guitar fuzz pedals. You know, when you think fuzz pedal, you think of the guitar line and satisfaction by the Stones. Yeah. You know, that, that's yeah. how I describe fuzz to someone, you know. And I had a lot of fun making those things. But I was always interested in guitar overdrive, and there wasn't a lot of stuff around on the market then. But I came up with this idea, and I th- just sort of came to me, and I thought, yeah, that could work. Right. And I, I, I put it on a little circuit board, and I built one to Noel guitar. Noel had a guitar he used to just crash around on. On stage? On stage. Yeah, he yeah. Couldn't re- didn't really play it, but it was kind of yeah. a novelty, you know, a bit, a bit of a spoof thing, I suppose. And so I thought I'd build a sort of input for him, and then he came back and said, it might just sound a wee bit too professional for him. <laughs> it's making me sound too good. <laughs> and, or, or just, because it was quite a smooth distortion. Yeah. Not really crackly or fuzzy or anything. And I thought, oh, right, yeah. yeah. So, but then round about then I get fired from the band, you see. Maybe you thought, Tim thought I was using my brain too much for a drummer. I don't know. But anyway, um, so I made it, I, I looked up band ads and Melody Maker. You mm, know, I used to mm. see all these band ads and think how interesting it was. Mm. And, so, and I auditioned and I, I, I played in a band called Tidal Wave Band for a wee while. I made the guitarist a dist- one distortion pedal. It wasn't called a hotcake then, I just built that into a box for him. And I uh, made maybe one or two others while I was there and before I came home. And then I came when I when I go back to New Zealand I started making them for friends and so on. And then <clears throat> I joined another got involved with another band and we're sitting around trying to think of a name for the band. And um who was who was there? It was um, God Halligan Studios. Um, I'm happy with names today. 
he said, you know what I call the band, the hot cakes, you know. I said, no, that's what I call my pedal, the hot cake. <laughs> that's a good idea. Mm. Yeah, so somebody mentioned that with regard to a band name. Right. Yeah, yeah. I wondered how you arrived at that. Yeah. I thought, was it, was it like, with this hope that that's immediately how they would start selling? Yeah, with Doug Rogers. Yeah. Doug Rogers was there with it when we were talking about a band name yeah. from Harlequin yeah. Studios. And he said, oh, you call the band the hotcakes. Because, you know, you think you, you, you have that usual discussion, oh, a name that's catchy, a name that sells, yes. a name that, you know, whatever. And so the hotcakes sell, you see. And um, <laughs> so that's where I got the name. Perfect. So it wasn't my original, own original yeah, yeah. idea at all. I just yeah. named I thought, yep, yeah, I'll use that for the pedal. And, I mean, when does it really, like... So you, you, you start making them, you say you're making them for friends, getting an idea. When does it become, I don't know, viable? When do you, when do you, th when do you work out and how do you work out? This is something we can continue to do ourselves. And what's the first, I guess, significant endorsee or feedback that creates massive interest? Can you talk through that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well... Anyway, I, was, I carried on making them for friends and so yeah. on in New Zealand and then sold some through um, Kingsley Smith's music shop who was around there and they, they would get a few off me here and there. So it was all word of mouth. A couple would go overseas. Um, Shane Carter was, I think it was Straight Jackets, but he, they were playing with the band uh, My Bloody Valentine and the, and the My Bloody Valentine's guitarist had this rack of gear and he's asking Shane how he got his sound and he, yeah, wow. <laughs> Shane put it into his hotcake. <laughs> And Shane gave it to him for a present. Wow. And he got hold of me and he got another one, you see. Yeah. This is Kevin Shields. I don't know who they to Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. Don't know names, yeah. And so little stories like that, or a band might be coming through and I would offer that. And I remember Neil Finn had a distortion pedal, custom made one from um, England, and asked if I could fix it. It was the early 80s. I said, no, it's all covered, all the circuit's covered in pitch, so you can't get to the circuit. But I, I loaned them my hotcake, that we'll try this. Mm. And so he's used one ever since. <clears throat> mm. He's got a, he's, I think he's still using, he's got a very old one. He even survived the New York flood, because it was there, <laughs> when the New York floods. Right. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and so it just went on like that for a while, and then, an American guitarist called Henry Kaiser mm -hmm. got one from me. I remember I got a letter from him because it was no emails then or anything. Yeah, yeah. And somehow he knew I don't know how to contact me. I don't know. Uh, he's an avant-garde sort yeah. of player. He's a real. He's a guitar soloist who does free jazz, noisy stuff. And, yeah, I yeah. knew nothing about right. what he did. Yeah. But anyway, so he'd got one, and so I just treated along, making a few on the side here and there. And then I got a phone call from a lady. She said, I'm visiting from America and my son wants me to get him a hot cake. And I've asked around the shops and they told me they weren't available. And I thought, that sounds about right. Hmm. And we said, but the rock shop, it was really rock shop days, and said to give me a call and they gave her my number. Hmm. So I went to see her at the hotel she was staying and I took a hot cake pedal down, the, the then version of it. Hmm. And she said, my son's um, Ken Fisher, and he writes for a magazine called Vintage, Vintage Guitar. And 
he and he makes an amplifier called a train wreck amplifier. Mm. And um, you know, and he was keen to get one, and he had seen Ken Fisher's one, you see. Mm. And so off she went with this pedal, and then he phoned me. A couple of weeks later, he said he loved the pedal. He said it's been, and he mentioned it in Vintage Guitar Magazine. He had a column in that, mm. a semi-technical column for musicians. Mm. He mentioned, just mentioned the hot cake, and he got quite a lot of people interested in manufacturing it. And and he called me. He said you should probably charge more for it, make it yourself, and you know you get the money and so on. So. That was his, his recommendation. Mm. So I, I placed a couple of ads in the Vince, Vintage Guitar magazine, and Ken was happy for me to say it was Ken Fisher's favourite yeah. guitar pedal. Yeah. And I sold a few by mail mail order. Yeah. It would literally write, send to me, send a money order, money yeah. order, yeah. yeah, which you take the bank and it takes <laughs> 20, wor 20 working days, which is actually a month. Why don't yes. you just say a month? But yeah. Never mind. It takes 21 working days to clear or something. So it was all that carry-on. And then, this is where it got interesting, I got a letter from Japan, a man called Hiroshi Yagi, Hiroshi Yagi. And he had a company called Human Gear. And he was interested in some, the pedals, you see. And I thought, well, I gave him a price in US dollars, and I said, if you want to get 10, now what, I didn't think too much of it, if you want to get 10 of them, um, I'll give you a bit of a little bit, bit of a discount, you know. And so he orders, he sent an, em, an envelope full of hundred thousand yen notes because a hundred thousand yen was hundred US dollars, which is what I gave him for. Yeah. And by this time, I'm starting to work doing sound for mutton birds as well. Yeah. About ninety four, ninety five, and um, so I sent them to him, and then next time I get another letter back. 10 all gone, please send 40. So I sent 40. <laughs> and then it was like, please send 60. Yeah. So by this time <laughs> I'm starting to think about oh, shipping them there and everything. So I, I, there's a DHL and shipping company and UPS both have a, a box, a 25 KGB Express box. And you get a good price and it'll take up 25 kilograms and just guess what, holds exactly 60 hotcakes. <laughs> So every couple of months, for quite a while, I was sending 60 hotcakes wow. yeah. to Japan, yeah. of all places. And he was importing them and selling them through shops. So there's double markup, and they were so expensive over there, but handmade New Zealand and all this. Yeah. And he sold quite a few thousand. And that's what really made us realize it was viable. We started yeah. doing things in slightly bigger quantities. And, and I improved, I improved them. I've always made little improvements, either for better manufacture or better reliability yeah, as yeah. time's gone on. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're making them, when you say you're making them yourself, what's the, what's the kind of, um, I guess, obviously you do them in, what, you what do them, yeah, yeah, you do them in various stages, but I'm sort of, I'm sort of a production timeline, I guess is oh, what okay. I'm asking for in terms of either one unit or X amount of units. Yeah, I'm pretty much always catching up with orders. Yes. So I'll make little runs of them. Yeah. I, I just about never get ahead. But, 
But yeah, what happens is we I, I get the boxes. They're a Canadian-made or design box by a company called Hammond, mm. little die standard diecast box, and they're actually made in Taiwan now, I think, but mm -hmm. it's still that particular yeah. brand. I've stuck with that brand. There are cheaper ones, but I've stuck with them. And then I'll I'll get them all drilled. I've got a friend who drills them for me. Yeah. And I'll get them all painted uh, with that almond finish. Yeah. Powder and powder coated. And then I get them printed. So that's done outside, and then they all arrive. All the boxes arrive, and then I get the circuit boards made by an Auckland company. And my wife puts all the my wife Jo puts all the parts in the circuit boards. Yeah. And I just put the final the wires onto the circuit boards and the and the and the controls. Pardon me, protect geometers or the pots as they yeah, called, yeah. the knobs. I put or the controls. I put those on the board and I finish all the pedals off, mm, and mm. then I test them all. Yeah. And then I close them up. I put a little bit of silicone over the circuit board, partly to keep the help try and keep the circuit a little bit secret. Although the circuit's all over the internet now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks to a certain technician in Christchurch. Thank you. And. Um, so they let the cat out of the bag, which is, you know, I don't mind if you want to make their own pedal, but it's giving the circuit away to everyone. Yeah, like, yeah. Even all the big companies too, so, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the wartime, they'd be, they'd be called being a traitor. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, the, so, and, and we pack them up and we send them out. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so, and they mostly go, some go to the UK, mostly go to America, a few to Europe. And since the earthquake, the, um, my friend Hiroshi in Japan has gone very quiet. So there's been long gone to Japan for a few years now. Right. Or very, right. very few, yeah. Mm, mm. But, you know, he's the one who was, a, of all things, you wouldn't believe yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That market in Japan is what really got, set us up. Yeah, in, yeah. In, you know. In, mm. Now, there are... Bigger name guitarists than Henry Kaiser. That not that he's not important. A lot of guitar players will know that he's certainly a skilled player. But there are some bigger name people than him that have been spotted with hotcakes. Yeah. These these, yeah, yeah. these things appear on stages around the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, for a while I was showing up at, at sound checks here. I'll go and see say a band like Doo Doo Dolls and yeah. And say, do you want to try this? And the guitarist will try it out. Next thing, it's Velcro to his pedal, and how much do you want for it? Right. That, that was kind of nice. Some nice little stories like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thurston Moore from Sonic mm, Youth. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. He apparently he used them. Yeah, yeah. that maybe through contact from New Zealand band. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then I, I found out Oasis was using one or a couple, and um, and. Neil Finn's always used it all the way through. Yeah, it's always he's always got a great guitar sound. People and people yeah. know how he got, you know. Yeah, that and um, more recently, or well, a few years ago, Mark Knopfler did an album with Emmy Lou Harris yeah. called All the Runnings. All, all the, the Road Running. running yeah. All the Road Running, and he used a hotcake. Mm. And, and I, I found out in a roundabout way. <laughs> yeah. Somebody sent me a photo taken by Guy Fletcher. Right. Of, of who's his keyboardist? Key, keyboardist. Yeah. And I think he plays guitar too, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he plays all sorts of things. Yeah. And, and he's in Dire Straits. He, he as does well. all the yeah. photos. He's got yes. photographs of flying over Mount Taranaki and right. some stage in Gothenburg in Germany or something rather or whatever it is. 
Yeah. And uh, and there's one photo. Is there's Mike. There's Mark Knopfler's mic stand with a one hotcake sitting at the bottom of it. Wow. I mean, that's and in terms of a guitarist's guitarist to yeah. be some sort of endorsee to yeah. have, you know to have the product. That's that's a name, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's nice to hear that kind of thing, but. My feeling is I still think, no, whoever the guitarist is, it doesn't matter if yes. it's working for them, that's yeah. great. Yeah. You know, because yeah. it's like you get the stuff I... Here's, a, here's a, an effect pedal, you know, invented by Steve Vai, or, or yeah. well, they paid him 100 grand to say... Yes. <laughs> and say, well, if you want to sound like Steve Vai, you better do about 10 years band guitar practice first, and then mm. you might get there, you know. Mm. So... So the same with Fred, must the same with Mark Knopfler. I mean, who plays like Mark Knopfler? No. But the fact that he, he, enjoy, he likes to use my pedal, yeah. that's how I see it. If he likes using it, that's, yeah. that's, that's great. And you make another, I um, mean, you make, you've made a few other things, but you make another pedal that makes a, a splash. The um, band, the Datsuns, actually write a song or what kind of in tribute to it. Yeah, I'm not sure where, yeah, because I don't think, yeah, well that's the prunes and custard pedal. Yes. And then I and thought the I... And the harmonic generator. Yeah, I wrote down, yeah, I thought, well, what's this doing and what's the big long word that looks kind of German? Yeah. You know, they have a sentence and a word almost. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> so I called it harmonic generator intermodulator. Yeah. Which is what happens with any type of distortion anyway. Yeah, it, yeah. it generates harmonics and you get intermodulation between different frequencies. And um, so I called it, I, so I put that, and I just I had this idea, I was with some mutton birds and toying with some other ideas, and I thought, I oh, just something treats the, the wave, the, the incoming waveform of the sound in a different way than just, just normally it's just what you call clipping. It just tops the bottom off the waveform. So I made something a bit more interesting. And I, I've since found out that um, there's a, there was a module made in days of Buchler synthesizers mm. called a wave multiplier and what my, my my pedal does is very similar but I do it in a lot in, in a far simpler way mm-hmm. and um, which is not surprising it's not surprising somebody else has done it but I've just sort of made it and and it, it sells a few I mean a lot of people would find it not commercial they wouldn't yeah. sell enough to make yeah. it worthwhile but I just carried on making it and and get various reactions to it. Yeah. But yeah. It's, but little it's, little yeah. labour of love pedal. Yeah, I thought no, I'm gonna I'll carry on making these and yeah. And and uh, I think the f- one of the first people to try it out just by ha- happenstance was um. With, with, I went to Neil Finn when he was had uh, a studio in his house and um. Chad Blake tried one. Right. Oh no, not Chad Blake. Was, yeah, Chad Blake, the engineer. He was. He, he got one off me. He started. He started using it for, for mixing and so on. And Mitchell Froome was trying. Yeah, yeah right. Actually, with the world, it's a piano. Yeah. And he cottoned onto it very quickly what it could do. Yeah. And he was playing around, so he got one. And would you believe it? I didn't have the name then. Yeah. I called it, and it's written on those ones with a, with a label, like Google Box. <laughs> Because <laughs> I quite like the name Googly from Cricket. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was called a Google box, G O G G L E. Yeah. Yeah. I should have registered the name, shouldn't yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, prunes and custard. Why? Yeah. It just came out of the prunes and custard. And you, th- you go, well, before I change my mind, I'll do some artwork for that mm. and, um, and get them printed. Yeah. Mm, mm. And I mean, Mitchell Froome and Chad Blake 
together and alone, you know, bet- between them, they've got an incredible uh, sphere of influence and track record of working with, you know, yeah. so many of the greats over the last quarter century. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they have. And and, and so they, they both saw something or heard something that they thought they could use yeah. it for. Yeah. Surprising, when it comes to sound, a lot of people are actually quite conservative. I say, try this, and I go, oh, mm. I'm not sure if it fit with what I'm doing. I'm going, yeah, but it might get, and other people say, oh, yeah, I've got some ideas from that. Mm, mm. It just shows different ways of thinking. Yeah, know? yeah. Now, you mentioned doing live sound for the mutton birds. I know you've done a lot of um, sound engineering, but the mutton birds uh, never, ever sounded bad, I think, on live and on record. Certainly on record, they didn't make a mistake. You know, they were one of the greats. Yeah, they did great. Really nice recordings. Yeah. Yeah, Yep, and certainly any time I saw them they sounded amazing like yeah. just the and the and and you're talking about four very very good musicians as well like a great collective sound the bands that play great together yes fantastic Don's fantastic songwriter yes great lyrics good vo- great voice you know it's funny because I remember Don because they used to get recordings off the desk which is not a good idea and they say oh the guitars could be a bit loud I'd say well you can hear the guitars in the room mm. Yeah. And Don would say, well, I wouldn't mind if the guitar's loud even if you couldn't hear my voice properly. I said, how much do you get paid for the lyrics? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think they're important, Don. Yeah. I mean, and I, that was kind of proved, really, because they played... We got a spot in Glastonbury and got a really good reaction. And because we, they had a co-manager over there um, who was right on the case, you know. And they, they also got to play at... Um, Roskilde at Roskilde Festival in Denmark and they were one of the last bands on one of the marquees and there was Pearl Jam playing on another outside stage and so on but people were coming into the marquee and the, no one seemed to leave and the crowd just got bigger and bigger mm. and, and you really got that and there was, these people had never seen the band mm. And they were playing great, and it sounded good, and you could hear the lyrics for English, English. Yeah. And you just got that feeling that, what, what, what's the next song? Because everyone would say different. Yeah. <laughs> and they got an encore. Yeah. Wow. Playing to a crowd they never played to before. Yeah. So that kind of proved that I thought it was important to hear Don's lyrics. Yeah, yeah. Make the, make the band sound good and have the whole thing got a bit of meaning about it. Yeah, yeah. And Ross Burgess drumming. Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, Don, it's fantastic, great. Yeah. Just laid it down. Yeah. You can always tell what mood Don he was in. Yes, but, you know, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, but I don't yeah. imagine he ever let a gig down. I don't imagine he, Never. you know. And, no. and David Long, one of the great kind of textural layering, you know, forces within a band. Yeah, there's somewhere, yeah, I, I really appreciated, as Tom went on, I appreciated more and more what Dave was doing. Mm. Yeah. And one of those great sort of knows when not to play guitar players, which are quite rare. <laughs> yeah, and you could yeah, and we had a setup where I had a kind of a stereo setup with him, so mm. he had a special, he had one effect module. And he had a yeah, had a hot cake in there and another couple of distortion pedals as well. Mm. And we used to mic up. He placed a Vox AC30 amp, which would sit right at his shoulder level on his right so he'd just play just that loud mm. just not too loud mm. so it wasn't I was never getting too much guitar off stage Don would be louder off stage than, than Dave 
and but I took a stereo, we took stereo, so we'd mic up his amplifier and then from the other side of his, his little signal processor, which he used to use a stereo tremolo in sometimes, I would, would take that direct, the DI, mm -hmm. direct, mm -hmm. and then I would adjust the channel to make it sound somewhat similar to the mic side, it wasn't going to sound the same, and then run that stereo. And sometimes I'd run them in, in what you call in phase or out of phase, and do little things like that. And mm. so that that was that was a lot of that was cool. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Now you've some great gigs with the Martin Birds. I just yeah. absolutely love working with them. I was going to say you sort of work exclusively, or you have a long term relationship with them. But you go off and freelance as a sound engineer. I take it you do other. You know you don't just. Do uh, them yeah, while yeah, they're existing. Yeah, I know you've done yeah, loads of no, things, but yeah. Well, from when I we had the company Live Sound, I was yeah. involved with that as yeah. technical director. But by uh, by by around by about 1990, I left Live Sound and sold and, and sold my shares in Live Sound. Been carried on doing freelance sound, yeah. 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 And and Martin was one of them, and um, I don't do that so much now. I used to doing the tours and so on, you know. Don't do that so much now. I still do a bit of work. Yeah, yeah. Look after some sound in Auckland here. And I guess it's a balance. You must get way behind on the hotcakes if you're out on the road, for example. Oh, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. You say you're yeah. all, yeah. Yeah, especially well, in the earlier part, I'd yes. come back and do a backlog of stuff, mainly from Japan. Yeah. You know, get that done and sent yeah. out. And, and uh, yeah, but now it's pretty much, yeah. It's a, I'm not selling as the same rate as I was, but they're still yeah. tickling along nicely. There's still... Seems like a viable pedal. People still still like using them. Um, and well, I mean, we mentioned the the more recent sort of covers band with with Eddie Rayner, but you you kept your hand in it playing drums all the time. I take it. I mean, I'm I'm yeah. talking to you in your house and I'm staring at a at a kit that's. Oh set yeah, up. I've got an electronic kit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a lot of fun actually. Cause yeah, it's, it's, it's just be able to sit down and bang on that. Yeah. Probably not as much as I should, but it's still good. Yeah, and I, I play in a, a bit of a blues rehearsal band and yeah. go along to blues club and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's keep it But I guess what, I I guess what I'm asking is, is, yeah, have you have you always played the drums? Like, did you, was that pretty much? Like, is there a period where you gave it away for a long no, time? No, I've never actually yeah. given it away and sold my kit or anything. Fantastic. No, no. <laughs> it's no, it's I've good never, to hear. Yeah, I've never <laughs> given up. And I've always yeah. played. Yeah. And you know, and last year we pl I played some stuff for, for one of um, Eddie's um, Enzo yes. concerts. He had a, a, like the the original Enzo was fully orchestral. Yes, but he's more like more lately, more recently, he's done other projects where it's been a rhythm section plus some you know orchestral instruments and yeah. strings and brass and yeah. so on. And he had Michael Barker, who's absolutely wonderful drummer and percussionist yes. and everything. Yeah. And I remember I had a jam with Michael once, and he was playing piano and I was playing drums. He can play piano. I did bit. say he can play piano and drums at the he same time. He plays piano bit <laughs> and I can play drums. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. But, um, yeah, great guy. And so so for the last Enzo at the Civic, and we did one in Christchurch, I played sort of some, some of the old material. Yeah, and what yeah. was that like for you? It was just great. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. And, you, and, and of course, you need to, for those you need to, you rise to the occasion and you, and you work a bit harder at it and make yeah, sure you're yeah. up to speed. Do some heavy listening going into it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Sometimes yeah. I'm thinking, what I actually played there? Because what I played some of the material changed from mental notes to second thoughts. And I thought, yes. what's the better one to stick with? And which yeah. one should I stick with? Yeah, yeah. And which one can I still do? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Um, 
Well, we've had a good old chat. Is there anything else you wanna, um, is there anything I've missed out that you really wanna bring up? I've loved, I've loved hearing all these stories no, and no. sort of charting <clears> through. <throat> no, I think we've pretty much covered everything. Yeah, that's been wonderful. Very well to lie down